0: We've been speaking for the last three Lord's Days on the subject of the false Roman Catholic teaching of purgatory in which it is said that believers must be purified and punished for their sins before they can enter into God's presence. Now, previously, we've shown that there is no scriptural basis for the false Roman Catholic teaching of purgatory. Not only that, but Jesus and Paul's teachings about the timeline of the death of believers leaves no room to insert a stint in purgatory. We are absent from the body and instantly present with the Lord, scriptures teach us. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul encourages believers to understand what will occur when Jesus returns to claim His people. Those who are asleep in Jesus, God will bring their souls with Christ to be united with their resurrection bodies. But those believers who are still alive at Christ's return will be caught up together with those resurrected saints to meet the Lord in the air. Paul then exclaims, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. These are great words of comfort for all of the Lord's people, but again, there is no room at all to insert any detours into the flames of torment some people call purgatory. Roman Catholic apologists raise what seems like a reasonable argument that believers must be purged of their sins and receive temporal punishment before they will be fit to appear in the presence of a holy God. But that argument collapses in view of their contradictory teachings on indulgences for it soon transpires that there is no essential need for such purification since it can be bypassed completely based upon the merits and sufferings of other people. Which leaves the question, how do the Scriptures teach that believers are made fit to appear in glory? First, we must never minimize the great truth that our Lord Jesus has the power to forgive sins. By the declaration of His Word, He forgave the poor paralyzed man who was let down through a hole in the roof. He forgave the poor paralyzed man of his sins. We must not scoff at or be incredulous of Christ's mighty power to forgive our sin. He has won the right by satisfying justice for us on the cross. All the demands of God's justice for our sin. So that there is for us no debt to be paid to justice and to God for our crimes. Because Jesus paid all of that at Calvary. Jesus proclaimed that whoever believes in Him has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. We have passed from death into life already. There is, to be sure, a change in believers that is required for our bodies, but it is not wrought by the torment of flames of purgatory. Rather, that change is the power of God, the resurrection power of our Lord Jesus. In Romans 8, Paul teaches that believers have been predestinated to be conformed to the image of His dear Son. And because of that, all who are so chosen will one day be justified and one day be glorified. That is, the working of Christ for us on the cross results in all of those who trust in Him being declared completely perfect in God's sight. That is, justified. We are without fault by the propitiation of our sins, by the bloodshedding of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But then the promise is we will be glorified, that is, made in the image of Christ, perfected like Jesus, and placed in great splendor, freed from all evil, and given the enjoyment of all that is good forever. Indeed, already, Paul says, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. One method God uses to change us into the image of Christ is that the Holy Ghost stamps the very glory of Jesus upon us as we gaze upon Jesus' glory. We gaze upon Christ's glory by reading His Word, by meditating upon the beauties of the Savior, through worship, by celebrating His dying for us, around the Lord's table, we behold and are continually confronted by the glory of Jesus. And the Spirit uses that confrontation to glorify us in this life as well as the next. The Apostle John declares the truth of this transformation by the viewing of Christ. When we shall see Him one day with our own eyes as He is, we shall be made like Him. John says, because we finally get a full look at Him as He is in His majestic glory. Not just our souls and persons, but our mortal bodies will be changed like unto Christ's glorious resurrection body. This is done, Paul informs us, by that power by which Jesus conforms all things unto Himself. We must not forget that Jesus created all things and upholds all things by the word of His power. So He is able and in fact will change our bodies like unto His body one day. This is resurrection power exercised by the Lord Jesus. And Paul expands upon it in his great preaching in 1 Corinthians 15. He describes how Christ will raise up His beloved ones from the grave unto spiritual bodies with incorruption, immortality, power, and glory where our natural bodies have all the opposite defects. Not only so, but even those believers that are alive, when Jesus comes back in resurrection power, those believers will be changed. Their bodies will be changed and glorified and exalted, whether we still live or whether we have already died. Paul declares this change is instantaneous, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Note well, there is no time to insert any stint in purgatory in all of this. Our change is immediate and wonderful and wrought by the resurrection power of Christ upon His people. This is the changing out of our mortal bodies, living or dead, with our new glorified bodies like Christ's resurrection body whereby corruption and death are taken away from our bodies and immortality and perfection are clothed upon us by Jesus Christ. This will take place just like Jesus promised in John chapter 5. So contrary to the Roman Catholic reasonableness argument that we must be purified by torments, we have the true answer, we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus And by His resurrection power, not torments, we are changed. Our bodies are changed out. Sin and mortality and corruption are stripped away from us. We are clothed with perfect, glorified spiritual bodies like the body of Jesus. Jesus works the change we require instantly at the resurrection for all His people living and dead. Already God sees us without fault at all for Jesus' sake clothed in the imputed righteousness of Christ and the garments of salvation. But as for our bodies, we don't need purgatory to purify us. What we need is resurrection. And that is what every believer has been promised by the Lord Jesus. And so we come at last to the end of our study. All that is left really is to review some doctrinal texts and proofs against the false teaching of purgatory after Paul preaches in Romans 3 the doctrine of justification by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, whereby He satisfied divine justice in our place. So God declares us righteous for Jesus' sake. And then in chapter 4, which we read, Earlier this morning, Paul further refutes righteousness by works of the law. He refutes that notion that we can be made righteous if we'll just keep the law. And he asserts that Abraham and David, the patriarchs of Israel, were not justified by the keeping of the law, but rather were justified and declared righteous by faith only. And we read this in Romans 4, verse 5 to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. And then there's this striking quotation from the psalmist David at verse 7, which Paul quotes with approval as proving his point that righteousness is by faith, not by works. David is quoted as saying in verse 7, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Every believer, you see, is that blessed man we can look and we can say, we are blessed because the Lord will not impute against us our sin. God will not impute sin to anyone whom He has justified already by faith in Christ. Purgatory, you see, runs roughshod over this beloved truth because under its false teaching, God continues to impute sin to His people. To believers, he even imputes sin to the point of condemnation to hell if it's a mortal sin. And otherwise, he imputes sin to the increase of the torments of the flames of purgatory. But Paul said that God does not impute our sins to the believers who've been justified by faith. Scripture is clear. We have no fear of hell or purgatory. We who've laid hold upon Christ by faith, believing what God promised us because God will not impute to us our sin anymore. And the reason is that He imputed our sin already to the Lord Jesus on the cross. And He suffered in our place for our sin. And He had the torments placed upon Him so that there is no sin left to impute to those who have trusted in Jesus. It's already been used up on the cross. The consequence of all this, of course, is found in the first two verses of Romans chapter 5. We read that also this morning. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith, into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have peace with God. We have peace with God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is the blessed state of all who've put their trust in Jesus. There can be no peace with God so long as He imputes to us our sin. And there can be no purgatory If God doesn't impute to us our sin, there is no punishment for us to suffer. There is no purification for us to undergo. We have peace with God because He does not impute our sin against us anymore. You see, there can be no peace with God so long as we fear and dread the punishment of the flames of purgatory. There can be no peace with God if that's our condition. But Jesus has taken away all of that for the believer. The writer of Hebrews makes a similar point. Christ has taken away fear from us and he contrasts our condition, our blessed condition, we who've trusted on Jesus, he compares it with the terrors of the law in Hebrews chapter 12. He says of believers, Ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. They begged Moses not to make them listen to God, directly speak to them. They couldn't bear the terror and the fright of it. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. You see, believers who have peace with God are not brought into this terrifying condition that those under the law were. But look at what it says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, and the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. The spirit of just men made perfect. This is the environment in which the believer rests. Not a spirit of fear, not a spirit of dread, but rather the spirit of glory and of blessedness in the New Jerusalem with the angels, with all the church, with the spirits of just men made perfect, and with the Lord Jesus who made a sacrifice for us, whose blood shedding says better things to us than the animal sacrifices that Abel made. We come to the presence of the Spirit of just men made perfect. This is how we are to view ourselves before God under the new covenant, we who've trusted in Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that brings peace and glory to God's people. No longer should we be full of dread and fear if we've trusted in the Lord Jesus. But this is all contrary, you see, to the spirit of the doctrine of purgatory because men must live their whole lives in fear and dread of coming torment in the flames of purgatory and punishment for the sins that the Lord Jesus has supposedly already dealt with on the cross. Hebrews has previously proved that the sacrifice of Jesus makes those who trust in Him perfect. And here we get finally to the nub of the matter. The reason we can't be punished in purgatory is because Christ's offering has already rendered His people perfect. Why? He took all of our sin off of us, and it was laid on Jesus, and He was punished in our place. Now there's no sin left to judge us for Contrasted to the old animal sacrifices, if you recall, Hebrews chapter 10 says these words, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because if the worshipers once purged it should have had no more conscience of sin so this is the argument against animal sacrifices they couldn't take away sin they were just a picture pointing to Jesus who could take away sin who would one day take away sin but notice the goal here is to make the comers to make the comers that is the offerers of the sacrifices to make them perfect to purge forever their consciences from sin. And that could not be accomplished under the Old Testament sacrificial system. But did notice that the sacrifice of Christ does make us perfect. We see this in verse 10. We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now you know this word sanctified means to be set apart to be made wholly dedicated unto a holy God. Christ's sacrifice has already done for us, you see, what purgatory claims to do to make us perfect before God. No, no, Jesus already did that on the cross. He has forever perfected His people. And then notice at verse 12 and verse 14, but Christ, after He had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God, for by one offering He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. There it is, you see, there is the scriptural doctrine that teaches that by Christ's offering for our sins, we who trusted in Him have been made perfect. We've been made perfect because of the offering of the Lord Jesus. You see, for believers, the concept of purgatory perfecting us through suffering, it comes too late. Too late in the timeline. Christ has already done that by suffering for us in our place on the cross. Now, this has a real life consequence. The writer of Hebrews pushes this further than merely to assert the perfections of the saints and the holiness of the saints before God. In the next few verses, it has real life consequences that the false notion of purgatory would seek to nullify. And we read those in Hebrews 10 at verse 19. We spoke extensively on this several months ago. We won't repeat it all. But listen to what the writer then says. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You see, we've been told here in the teachings of the Roman Catholic system that we can't enter into the holiest because we haven't been purged yet by the torments and the flames of purgatory. But it says here that we have boldness now to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say through His flesh, that is we come before God through the very torn flesh of Christ that He offered for us on the cross. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, you can't do any of that stuff if you're in fear of purgatory. You can't come before God in the holy place with of pure conscience and with boldness by the blood of Christ. Listen to what it says. We don't need the fires of purgatory to purify us before we are fit to enter before our holy God. No. We have boldness to enter right now by the blood of Jesus. We are not to shrink back from the presence of God. We his sons dreading yet requiring the torments of purgatory, we are to draw near now, you see, with full faith and assurance, having our hearts sprinkled with true hearts of assurance of faith. You see, because our hearts have been sprinkled clean of an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is a completely different attitude and mental posture that the saints are exhorted to approach unto God with. It is completely the opposite. Don't you see how contrary all of this true Bible doctrine is to the slavish fear and dread of some future time in purgatory and its torments. And finally, I would leave you with this. Months ago when I was asked to prepare some notes on this topic of purgatory and which request has led me to prepare these four messages upon the subject, for the very beginning I was drawn to a particular verse of Scripture that points to the truth in all of this which we have spoken. Think of the sufferings of Christ for us on Calvary. We read this morning Matthew's recording of the suffering that Christ bore for us. But let's read again those verses. And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of a skull, they gave Him vinegar to drink mingled with gall and when He had tasted thereof, He would not drink. And they crucified Him. And parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots, and sitting down, they watched him there. This simple statement of what happened, of course, doesn't convey the horror of it. They crucified him, the most cruel way in which a person could be put to death in those days, to be nailed to a wooden stake, to be strung up naked before all the people and basically to slowly bleed to death and asphyxiate to death as your pericardium filled with fluid because of the way in which you were strung up by your arms. And it could take days for this agonizing death to take place. This is what the Lord Jesus was subjected to when He was crucified, but going on. And they that passed by reviled Him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking Him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others Himself. He cannot save. If He be the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross and we will believe Him. Be trusted in God. Let Him deliver Him now if He will have Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with Him cast the same in His teeth. Understand what this means that all the organized nation that our Lord Jesus was born into and lived in all His life, all the organized power was arrayed against Him there at the cross. And He was taunted with the one thing that He would not do it wasn't that he couldn't save himself from the cross. It is that he dare not save himself from the cross, else he would lose all of his people into everlasting fire and judgment for all time. He had to decline their taunt. He had to resist their taunt not to save himself because he was determined to save those who trust him. And then, It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? And then later on it says that the Lord Jesus cried out with a loud voice, It is finished. Father, into Thy hand I commend My spirit. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. That is, he dismissed his life from his body. As he had said in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and have the power to take it up. He voluntarily submitted himself to death in the place of his people. Notice that cry. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The one who had always been in the presence of God for eternity, satisfied in their love for each other. Now, at this time, in a sense, he is forsaken by God. That doesn't mean that God wasn't there and didn't see him and somehow had abandoned him. God is everywhere. God sees all things. But in the sense of being left to the wrath and judgment that wicked men placed upon him and that was done... By the purposes of God, the wrath and judgment which God laid upon him, he was left to suffer and to be tormented by that very wrath. Here is the real person who suffered for our sins, not ourselves suffering for our sins in purgatory. Christ is the real person who suffered for our sins, the torments of our crimes. God's Lamb slain in our place. Not us in purgatory. God's Lamb slain on the cross in our place. All the wrath of God deserved by us. Christ bore it Himself. All the punishment we ought to have suffered. Our Lord Jesus suffered for us to rescue His loved ones from that wrath and from that torment we sing the words of that beautiful hymn, the wrath, the wrath, the awful wrath that Jesus felt for me when bearing my sin's heavy load, He died on Calvary. You see, when you stop and think of it, if there was ever a purgatory for believers, it was where our Savior was tormented. Not some mythical place where we will be tormented. No. Christ has taken that away. He's foreclosed that possibility. He was tormented. If there is a place of purgatory, it's wherever Christ was tormented on the cross, you see. It was on that hill far away where on a cross, God's dear son, God's lamb of offering, was slain for us on the cross. That was the real place of purgatory. That Christ suffered so that His people would never have to. And the Scriptures make it clear that that was the real purgatory for our sins. Consider this text. The Son of God being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins. Sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. That's Hebrews 1, the verse 3. This is the real purgatory, you see. Where Jesus suffered, that's the only purgatory that we need. And I think you should know that purgatory is, of course, from the Latin term. That's where many of the names of the false teachings that the Roman Catholic system purveys come from. They use a Latin translation of the Scriptures called the Vulgate. And if you look up this verse in the Vulgate, and if you can read any Latin, you'll find that this phrase purged, sins is purgationum peccatorum. And that word purgationum is the verb form of that which takes place in a place of purgatory. The purging of sins. The doué reims, which is the Catholic translation of the Vulgate, puts it this way. Making purgation of sins. So well, you see the scriptures are clear. That if there's any purgatory, if there's any purging of sin going on, it's Jesus that suffered it on the cross. It's been taken away from us and discharged completely by Christ. And notice after He does that, He sits down at the right hand of God. We read this morning in our psalm reading that Christ is sat down by the Father, sat down at His right hand till He makes His enemies His footstool. You see, God's Lamb purged our sins already. He has finished and sat down at God's right hand. You know, as in other things, the Roman Catholic teaching oftentimes substitutes other people for the work of Christ, doesn't it? Why, they claim their priests are priests after the order of Melchizedek. Their priests are the ones who make sacrifices at the Mass. Their priests are the ones who issue absolution, who make intercession with God. Their Pope is the vicar of Christ, is the replacement of Christ in this world. And so you see what they have done is they have in the doctrine of purgatory sought to substitute the poor sinner the poor sinner in the place of Jesus, in the place of Jesus, in the place of torments for our sins. They have tried to substitute the poor sinful believer in the place of what Christ already finished on the cross when He purged our sins. And it is nothing less than a demonic blasphemous thing to overthrow the work of Christ in suffering the torments of our sins and try to insert the believer who trusts in Jesus in His place, in a place of torments and flames for sin. It is to trample the blood of Jesus underfoot, which has cleansed us from every sin before God when we teach this doctrine of purgatory. It is to supplant Christ's completed cross work with an imaginary and false doctrine. And so around this table, you see, we celebrate the real time when Christ was punished in our place and purged our sins. And it wasn't in purgatory. It was on the cross. It was on the cross where He sealed our pardon, paid the debt and made us free, as the songwriter put it. It was on Calvary's tree that all the torment for our sin rained down upon His sacred head and He bore it patiently for our sakes. Remember that other song we like to sing contains this verse nailed upon Golgotha's tree as a victim. Who is He bearing sin but not His own? Suffering agonies unknown? He, the promised sacrifice for our sins, has paid the price. Lamb of God, tis He, tis He, on the cross at Calvary. The work that saves us is done. It's finished by Christ. When He died for us, and He shed His precious blood. When His body was broken on the cross for us. And He made an atonement for us. And He is perfected forever those that are sanctified, who've called upon Him in faith and repentance. So let's give thanks for the Lord's table and for what the Lord Jesus said about the bread. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the bread first. O God, our Father, we give You the praise and glory for the work that Christ did, that He finished, the done work that He finished on the cross, and that He purged our sins in His own body at Calvary and that He has already suffered the torments and punishments for the crimes of all who call upon Him by faith to believe. We thank You that there are these promises which You have made. There is Your Word which You have provided us which declares all of these things to be true. And we around this table who have trusted in Christ, we... Lay hold upon this sacrifice and we trust in it and we adore it and we worship You. And thank You that Jesus left these symbols to remind us of what He was about to do the very next day. Go to the cross. Be sacrificed in our place. Suffer all the indignities and torments of our crimes so that we might be perfected, set free, have peace with God, and come boldly before Your presence in the holiest place now, clothed with the righteousness of our Savior. Bless us as we partake of this bread, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me i like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood shedding of the Lord Jesus for our sins. The scriptures say that after they had supped, the Lord Jesus took the cup and blessed it and said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. The Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 116 in the big blue book. Number 116, O sacred head, now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, how scornfully surrounded, with thorns, thine only crown, how art thou pale with anguish with sore abuse and scorn. How dost thy visage languish, which once was bright as morn. Number 116.